Series 3, Architecture plus Infrastructure, engages in conversation with multidisciplinary speakers who have contributed to the growing field of literature on infrastructure in the Gulf. This series explores how investment in infrastructure for the extraction, production, transportation, and distribution of resources shapes Gulf Series relationships to regional and global networks. These conversations also investigate the capacity of infrastructure to be maintained, adapted, or reimagined within the Gulf and at a planetary scale. Good morning. I'm Mahnaz Fancy, the Communications and External Relations Manager at Sharjah Architecture Triennial. Today's podcast is a part of the third series of our SAT Talks program, entitled Architecture and Infrastructure. And I'm very pleased to welcome today's guest, Gokche Gunel, who joins us from Houston. As an introduction, Gokche is an assistant professor in anthropology at Rice University. Her first book, Spaceship in the Desert, Energy, Climate Change, and Urban Design in Abu Dhabi, published in 2019, focuses on renewable energy and clean technology infrastructures in the United Arab Emirates, more specifically on the Mazdar City Project. Her articles have been published in Ephemera, Public Culture, Anthropological Quarterly, Avery Review, and the Fiber Culture Journal. Thank you for taking the time to join us today, Gokche. We've enjoyed your publications and the important insight they offer into the roles that infrastructures play in the GCC and UAE. How, at one level, infrastructure supports the imaginary projection of Gulf cities at sites of limitless progress and human conquest over the desert landscape, i.e. the tabula rasa narrative, and at a second level, how the delivery of these resources or utilities informs the relationship between the state and its citizens and inhabitants. I'm looking forward to delving further into this in our conversation today. To start with, I'd like to get a better understanding of your disciplinary or methodological perspective as an anthropologist working on infrastructure. What is this field of anthropology of infrastructure and how do your specific disciplinary tools permit insight into infrastructure, which is usually presented through a discourse that relies on scientific, technological, and statistical language. I'm an anthropologist, and the uh, defining characteristic or the method of anthropology is ethnographic research. As ethnographers, we try to do uh, participant observation uh, among in the communities that we study. Infrastructure has become a significant topic in anthropology uh, because by studying the infrastructures that make up a city or a country through garbage collection, transportation, water, electricity, these are all topics that have been uh, studied in the last 20 years quite extensively. We can examine how social and economic relations make themselves known through seemingly technical assemblages. So infrastructure is usually taken up as a technological or scientific project, sometimes maybe an urban planning uh, project, but rarely does its social meaning come to fore. Um, Anthropologists initially started studying infrastructure through its breakdowns because they said people don't really notice that infrastructure even exists. But when in the moments of breakdown, all of a sudden our reliance on infrastructure becomes very explicit. How do people behave in those moments of failure, in moments when there's power cut or when there's no access to water, etc.? So these are some of the larger questions that have shaped the discipline. 
my specific interest relies more on the future of infrastructure and how decision makers imagine the kinds of infrastructures that will inhabit perhaps in 10 years, in 20 years. I was interested in how decision makers or mainly climate change and energy experts understand our future and react to uh, future issues around environmental problems or energy scarcity. I thought Mazdar City was an ideal place for looking into these questions because the site is a place where we can actually think about how the future gets envisioned. You've actually brought me to exactly where I wanted to go next, a kind of science fiction future perspective was a really exciting part of your book uh, on Mazdar. And it was impressive to see how you managed to put in so much research about the scientific and environmental aspects of this early and ambitious project for renewable energy future cities that was launched as early as 2006 in Abu Dhabi. One thing that I think we would be interested in finding out more about is what kind of future city was being imagined by Mazdar? What were its intentions and in what ways did it succeed? In my work, I've described Mazdar City as a status quo utopia. And by status quo utopia, I mean a utopian city which actually aspires to keep uh, present financial, political and social relations intact. Mazdar City was ambitious and visionary, but its vision was actually a vision of conservation. I think uh, decision makers in Abu Dhabi were aware of the fact that oil is going to run out or become less valuable, and they wanted to safeguard their future by building an urban environment that would support a knowledge-based economy. And that knowledge-based economy would replace oil, would allow the citizens of the UAE to extend their lifestyles into the future. So although Mazdar City looks kind of futuristic when you first take a, a glance at it. When you study it more closely, what you realize is that it is an attempt at keeping the present as it is. That means preserving class relations as we understand it today, preserving relationships of consumption. In order to preserve the present as it is, people at Mazdar City came up with what I call in the book technical adjustments, all kinds of uh, inventions and interventions that allow humans uh, to continue their lifestyles, while at the same time introducing a very small transformation, a very small adjustments. I don't think this is necessarily something that's unique to Mazdar City. We see these kinds of adjustments everywhere as people try to divert to electric cars or try to use biodegradable plastic bags. All of these are attempts at preserving our lifestyles, while at the same time recognizing climate change and energy scarcity as significant problems. Of course, now talking about these issues during COVID-19, I think we've seen that actually lifestyle change is possible. All of a sudden, we've all stopped flying stopped using the resources that we used to use so intensively. And we're seeing a, a shift in how people imagine their cities, their social relations, their financial futures. So I think COVID-19 is actually uh, quite instructive in allowing us to think about climate change mitigation methods that are not purely technological, that are not purely based on business models, that are not purely based on smart urban design solutions. So it's the human response, the human behavior? The human response, a certain kind of ethical adjustment in regards to how we want to protect others in our communities, how we want to care for others in our communities, 
I think there's an ethical transformation that people are experiencing. I think it's opened up a conversation where we see that it's possible to change how we live. So when you're talking about the technical adjustments, you're talking about these very small gestures. And it seems like the scale of the project at Mazdar was enormous. What happened between the projected ambitions of this project and this space of technical adjustments? I guess one of the ways in which we can understand Mazdar is as a sort of an assemblage of technical adjustments at different scales. I think the city project itself is an attempt at a technical adjustment in thinking about urbanism. So how do we uh, think about cities in a climate-conscious, energy-conscious way was the question that drove uh, the planning of Mazdar. But at the same time, there was an interest in producing a new business model. And that business model could only be contained within the specific space that was going to be constructed for renewable energy and clean technology companies. And so by building a brand new city, a new way of occupying the space of the desert in an oil producing country and produce a showcase that could perhaps be packaged as a commodity and sold to other countries. The idea behind the project was that if you could build it in the desert, then you could build it anywhere. It was uh, seen as a non-contextual project that could be implemented wherever, which is why the metaphor of the spaceship in the desert stuck. And because the city was like a spaceship, a technological object in itself that could open up new frontiers and that could modify the political and economic conditions of Abu Dhabi during a period where oil resources would be, let's say, less valuable or unavailable. It's a fascinating concept, this idea of replicating this kind of city in a commercial way. Could you also talk a little bit about what knowledge economy means in the context of Mazdar? One of the things that I heard from the experts at Mazdar City was that they believed oil is exportable, but the sun is not. So how can we make the sun that we have so much of exportable? So in order to move beyond the oil, they thought, okay, we'll build a Silicon Valley of renewable energy and clean technology. And instead of selling the raw or even refined oil, will sell renewable energies and clean technologies. The idea was that, well, Abu Dhabi is already a big player in the energy sector. So Abu Dhabi would rebrand itself as an energy uh, hub. In order to become an energy hub, it had to invest solar and wind power. It had to build clean technology that it could export then to other countries around the world. And it's not only technology exports would range from consulting missions on how to apply for carbon credits to patents on different kinds of technological products. So there's a range of things that were happening there. I think your scale question was very interesting because in a way, Mazdar City itself became a technological product. The scale in that sense collapsed to making Mazdar City the same kind of commodity that, say, a novel solar panel might be. 
So from what I understand, these kinds of massive and costly projects, Mazdar, as well as all of the water and electricity related infrastructure are all related to what you just mentioned, the inevitable future when the GCC can no longer rely on oil as the primary economic driver. So how does this infrastructure contribute to the value of these cities, i.e. making them more attractive to global investment, tourism and migration? And then also related to your earlier point about technical adjustments, what kind of social or behavioral changes within the GCC might be necessary for sustained distribution of said resources in the future? In order to be able to inhabit the GCC, the people who migrated there or who were living there from the start had to build technological infrastructure that would push the heat out, create extra water resources, allow air conditioning to function as planned, etc. Water infrastructure, electricity infrastructure, just as they are anywhere else around the world, are vital to the existence of the GCC as it is. One issue that emerges now is once this infrastructure is built, how do you maintain it? How do you ensure that limitless water and limitless electricity is available to everyone living in the UAE and other GCC countries for the foreseeable future? One of the reasons why this becomes an issue in GCC countries is because of this promise that people came here believing that infinite water and infinite electricity would be available. So the moment water all of a sudden is no longer free or there's an electricity price increase, then there's a drive to keep the population happy. And in order to keep the population happy, it's critical to produce infinite water, infinite electricity. It's important to also keep in mind that infinite electricity means uh, infinite air conditioning because 70% of the electricity that's uh, produced in the GCC is used for air conditioning. People have written about, and I've written about this myself as well, there's an attachment to a specific temperature as being a signifier of a thermal modernity. Some of the inhabitants wanted to inhabit rooms that were 17 degrees Celsius. The architects and the engineers who were part of the project said, this is impossible. We're going to set it to 24 degrees Celsius. So there's a social significance to the temperature we choose to set in our ACs, in our homes. These things are not necessarily essential to our existence as humans, but we come to expect these things in order to see ourselves as being modern, right? Or from the perspective of the state, it becomes a way of legitimizing its existence as a modern state. When I wrote about water, I wanted to foreground how the seemingly natural qualities of water are left behind in the case of the UAE and in other GCC countries. As you're talking, I feel that... This whole narrative is always about separating the human from their body. Even temperature that you want to live in is a social thing. This is why I was fascinated by your article about the backbone, your 2018 article, about this electrical grid that the GCC countries went into together. Could you tell us about what the strategic goals of this backbone were and what concerns brought about this level of regional cooperation? 
The backbone literally acts as a backbone, bringing the countries of the GCC together into one body. And in that sense, the electricity infrastructure serves a very significant political purpose of keeping these countries attached to one another and allowing electricity trade between these countries. Let's say the nuclear power that's producing electricity in Abu Dhabi now could theoretically be sold on this grid and power other GCC citizens elsewhere. This kind of political investment in the GCC also allows different countries to build electricity generation facilities that might serve populations that are larger than their own populations. One of the reasons why the backbone was built was so that the electricity produced in the GCC countries could be used to then rebuild Syria or Iraq. So there's an expectation of a potential market in countries that have been devastated by conflict. Because once the backbone is there, it's relatively easy to extend it. And therefore, there's a sort of a logic of a market as well. Electricity is a very special commodity. You can't put it in a box and ship it. You have to sell it on the grid, through the grid. So having an electricity grid is like having a highway on which you can send trucks and trucks of electricity to other places. And this is an important financial investment beyond being a political investment in the unity of the GCC. And it's a way in which the GCC countries open up a new market for themselves where they're not necessarily exporting oil. And uh, once they're connected to the Turkish grid, they can be connected to the European grid, which generates this whole new scale of electricity exports. This exporting to Turkey and Egypt, Syria and Iraq, has any of this happened? Once you understand how much energy is used in Saudi Arabia and in the UAE in comparison to other countries, it's hard to imagine that at the same time as meeting their own needs and demands for electricity are growing as well in these countries, and then to produce enough to create an international market. I think the nuclear project in Abu Dhabi is a great example for this. When I was doing research in the UAE in 2010 and 2011, renewable energy and clean technology mainly referred to, at least amongst the experts that I was studying, solar power and wind power. Now, when I visited the UAE earlier this year in February 2020, the first place I went to was the Abu Dhabi nuclear energy headquarters. And we were there on the day when the first fuel arrived in the nuclear power plant to now start a different kind of renewable energy future. So I think now the investment is very much, at least in the UAE, in nuclear power production as a component of the renewable energy landscape. It is a departure from oil and from natural gas. It's a very efficient resource. Now, I think that the massive electricity consumption in the GCC will be satisfied through the expansion of nuclear infrastructure. I don't know the planning in other GCC countries in this regard, but perhaps we can see the development in Abu Dhabi as an indicator of other developments that might take place in other GCC countries. As you talk, I realize that maybe in all of this innovation in electricity production, they are creating the same kind of infinity of energy that you speak about in your work on water. So shifting to water, when you come to the 2016 essay, The Infinity of Water, you detail desalination infrastructure and how it pr produces this illusion of infinity. 
despite the fact that water scarcity is one of the most urgent issues in this region, considering that climate change means that all the other uh, issues are only going to get exacerbated over the coming decades, and desalination has proven to already have significant negative environmental impact, how are these costs, both literal and environmental, weighed against the benefits of desalination? That's a great question. And one of the things that I found fascinating when I was doing research at Mazdar was the imagination of externalities. And I'll use the Mazdar example to respond to these larger scale questions because Mazdar city was first built, it was branded a zero carbon city. No one really knew what zero carbon meant. But in late 2010, when people started moving into Mazdar City and living in the Mazdar Institute dormitories, students and faculty came together to discuss how they define zero carbon. And this is mainly a calculation problem because the kinds of decisions that had to be made were whose emissions do we count as the emissions of Mazdar City? We have all these employees that are from other countries that want to go see their families every three, four months. Do we count their uh, flights back home as part of our emissions? Many of our employees live in Dubai and commute to Mazdar City every day. Do we include their commute as part of our emissions here? We have apples and pears and our oranges being sold in the organic grocery store, and we eat those uh, fruits that have been produced elsewhere. Do we have to take into consideration the emissions that were produced in cultivating those fruits and bringing them all the way to our grocery store here? So when you lay out all the things that actually make up a city, all the things that sustain its population, you realize that it's very hard to actually produce a zero carbon city. And it's very hard to lay out the boundaries of where that city ends and where the rest of the world begins. And we're having the same kind of issues at the larger scale when we think about nation states, where we think about, okay, the UAE is producing X number of carbon emissions, and how should it contain its emissions? A lot of the kinds of waste products that we produce in these countries are not necessarily taken into consideration in the national planning or financial considerations for these countries, and instead they become externalities. So this is one of the issues that's happening. Yes, desalination is causing temperature change. It's changing the level of salinity in the water. It's causing red tide. It has all these effects, but we can take them as externalities. Basically, uh, a side effect of any kind of financial activity that doesn't necessarily affect the financial activity itself, but affects other parties. In that same Infinity of Water essay, I want to pull out a quote uh, where you say, the perceptions of climate change mitigation and adaptation shape and become reshaped by the social context in which they are interpreted. Therefore, it is necessary to complement the scientific reports on the environmental conditions of the region with how and why questions that delve into the social political, and economic context. So what are these questions in the GCC, these oil-rich states, and what particular challenges exist here? 
Perhaps the why and how questions would be related to consumption here. Why do we have to keep our rooms at low temperatures? Why do we have to water our lawns? Why do we have to consume resources in the extent that we consume? One of the things I wanted to say in the Infinity of Water piece is that the water problems in the GCC or in the UAE are not necessarily all caused by climate change. A lot of these problems are caused by using up resources that don't get replenished in time and not necessarily taking responsibility for the use of those resources. And so although climate change adaptation tools are useful in thinking about water-related problems, those climate change adaptation tools can't solve all of our problems. Humans also have to think about the ways in which they consume the resources, the ways in which they expect resources to be available at all times. Although we rely on an imagination of the infinity of water or the infinity of energy, we're also seeing that those imaginations or those beliefs are not necessarily sustainable. It makes me want to ask about the part of your book on Mazdar that talks about the particular kind of science fiction architecture and 1950s to 70s imaginary. It's a very interesting image of us in the future. So could you talk about the architecture part of it as well? Sure. One of the engineers at Mazdar early on in the project gave an interview and said, what we're trying to build here is Blade Runner. And this comment was mocked all over. Everyone said, well, Blade Runner is not something we should aspire to. Blade Runner is dystopia. And it's a dystopia where none of the problems that were intended to be resolved have not been resolved. See, we're seeing that actually, despite all the sort of uh, technological innovation, despite all the new business models, et cetera, still problems persist. But many of the references that were used during the construction of Mazdar City were references from the 1960s till the 1980s, an imagination of a world that can be isolated and of a kind of insulation from all the global problems, its ability to insulate itself was interesting to this engineer. And so many of the references for building Mazdar City came from that imagination of building a city that can withstand um, all kinds of environmental problems through cutting itself off from its environment. This is why the image of the spaceship is so important because the spaceship is sort of the ultimate vehicle or the ultimate vessel that manages to exist in a vacuum. And of course, we've seen many other examples of this, other even older symbols of such isolation would be like no, things like Noah's Ark. And so references to science fiction were not only significant in thinking about the specific technical adjustments that were taking place at Mazdar, such as um, driverless podcasts, but they were also really significant in outlining the imagination of this insulation, uh, the imagination of a possible insulated space. I love the idea of this. And yet at the same time, your native informants, the people you spoke to who lived in Mazdar, there's actually a community that's held together by beliefs and uh, there is a small utopic element in there as well. Was I wrong to read it that way? What do you think? Of course, I think that you're right in saying that, but I think maybe then it's important to ask who's not welcome in that community. 
So who are the people who can get in? Who are the people who can't get into that community? And so, again, the metaphor of the spaceship is really useful in explaining this because the only people who are allowed in a spaceship are astronauts who are there because they have a specific function and access to specific forms of expertise. One of the um, most telling examples of this was when I was doing fieldwork at Mazdar City, one of the engineers took me out on a tour of the solar power station. As we were walking around, he told me that actually solar panels are not as efficient as they expected them to be because dust and mud covered the solar panels and diminished their ability to produce electricity. So he said, but don't worry, we found a solution to this problem. We call it a man with a brush. And the man with a brush walks around the Mazdar city site cleaning solar panels on a daily basis. If you think about it, the man with a brush is fundamental to the existence of Mazdar city. Even if Mazdar city is able to achieve its ambitions to become zero carbon that only relies on solar panels to produce its electricity, the man with a brush has to be there in order to clean those solar panels. But the man with a brush is never seen as one of the members of that community, right? He's never going to be a member of that utopic sort of group that comes together to inhabit this space, although he is fundamental to the functioning of this community. And so I think it's a question of who gets to be saved in a spaceship uh, or in a Noah's Ark kind of situation and who gets left out. As a final question, I'd love to touch on the environmental questions, the ecology in a place like the GCC is fragile, right? And all of this technology puts stress on this fragile ecosystem. In your opinion, having looked at these various infrastructure projects, where do you see the most urgent needs These last few months, I've been looking at the growth of mangroves on the coast of Abu Dhabi. And I have colleagues who are doing research on the proliferation of uh, mangrove forests. I think this is interesting to study because they exist as, again, another form of externality because they're fed by the sewage uh, plants and the desalination plants. So the urban waste of Abu Dhabi has created this new sort of environment that transforms the way in which the residents of the city understand, let's say, quote-unquote, natures they have access to. And I'm finding it interesting to look at the new ecologies that are born in these unexpected ways. So perhaps rather than a technical adjustment, I think one thing that's probably useful in thinking about infrastructure in a place like Abu Dhabi is to meticulously track the places and the the things that infrastructure touches, to be able to uh, follow the different kinds of objects that circulate within those infrastructures from beginning to end. There's a temporal dimension to these infrastructures, that these infrastructures don't necessarily always function in the same way every day, or they don't necessarily function in the same context every day. They they change their context, and, and their context is going to change them. And so I think that kind of methodological care will help us think about infrastructures and urbanism in a more careful manner. Thank you for listening. To join for future set talks, visit our website and follow our social media.